This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. So this week, it's kind of a deep dive into something we've glossed over before, uh, which is basically business strategies as it differs based on the size of your business. Mm -hmm. So obviously your bigger vendors, GP, stuff like that, you have a different strategy for what you're doing as opposed to a backpacker. So this is going to be the first of two parts. This week, we're going to cover the vendor side, the non-backpacker side of it. Uh -huh. And we each have different experience with where inventory focuses for yes. a vendor. Uh, me being much more on the GP side, you want everything at the GP, you don't want holes, you want to fill it in in the GP. And... My lovely co-host, much more on the, it's okay to have holes, we need it on the, on the website web side yes. of things. So, going to try to get into the strategies there, what the differences are, etc. Uh, and that's it for part one. Part two, we'll get to backpackers. So, let's get it started. Yeah, so uh, the website side of things is actually kind of interesting. And you don't know as an attendee in at an event that you're working with a vendor who prioritizes their website over their... Uh, on-premises presence until you start looking around and let's say you're at a modern event and you're like all right i need this fetch land you know i need uh not scalding tarns because people have those let's say something uh lower tier like arid ma no, marsh flats yeah i need marsh flats for my deck i'm i'm playing whatever it is um you know i'm on mardu death shadow right that's yeah. a deck or was and you go to a vendor and you realize stuck. they have like seven out of the ten fetch lands and one of them that they're missing is marsh flats. And they have eight of the others. Well, chances are that that's a vendor that prioritizes their website over the on-site presence. And they know that having that card in stock on the website offers them more opportunities to sell that card. They have a larger sales velocity of that card on the website as opposed to being on-prem because that card will pass by millions of views over the course of that weekend or close to millions of views whereas on-prem it's all it's closed down you're locked in if people really need marsh flats you can buy them on-prem as a vendor you have that opportunity you can fill that hole on site it is not your priority to take that card away from the website which is your primary focus and your primary uh revenue generation stream to bring it to an event where that card will be missing for days from the website Similarly, you'll see buy lists that might look a little out of line for the event. You look at a buy list and you look at the hot list and you say, okay, there are a lot of cards in this hot list, hot list that don't serve um, the format here this weekend or let's say it doesn't serve the standard format. It serves something else that looks more casual or more slanted towards uh, filling weird holes as if they're you know, a commander-only vendor. Well, this is a vendor that's filling holes on the website. They are prioritizing the holes on the website versus inventory they can flip on site. They might they may not have the hottest card in standard or modern on that hot list because they're all sitting on the website and they have more than they need on that website. They don't need to buy any more to flip that weekend. Similarly, if they sell out on the website and you're there waiting to buy cards from the vendor and you see them buy that card and it doesn't get placed back out, it gets put back with inventory, and you ask to buy it and they do not let you, that card is probably going back on the website. It is not a harrowing experience, but it can be very different than what you're used to 
when you think of vendors at other events or when you deal with other vendors who have a GP only inventory, a Magic Fest only inventory. And it's really interesting and really unique. And there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes when the day ends. And that's something I will cover later. But it is not uncommon now to work with a vendor that prioritizes their website over their on-site uh, inventory and presence. And so something that, you know, people always wonder then is obviously you have aggressive stuff for stuff you need on the website. Oh, yeah. Say, for example, you know what? We have the Marsh Flats on the website. We just don't need them for the website because we've satisfied our stock. Mm -hmm. Now, when you generate your hot list for the weekend, would you typically put Marsh Flats on your hot list? Would you have a different buy price for it? How would you approach that in that instance? So the hot list just being the representation of the cards that we want that weekend because we know we have an event coming up and we can uh, flip that We have because we, were, we run our own event series or mm -hmm. we will be at another event where we know we can place it, or we know that demand is as such that when we stock that card, the notifications go out for people that are watching it, and that card will be sold almost immediately, right? Okay. So uh, that card could be on the hot list for that, reasons, for that reason. But we might still have a, a price on that card even though it's not on the hot list, and even if there is... Even if we have enough to state demand for mm -hmm. the next few events... We will still buy that card, but it might be below what our normal buy list number for that is. So if you go to our website and you look at the buy list number there and you see one particular number, that number is set for demand over time. Whatever our expectation is, what our forecasting says, we need to buy X quantity at X dollars to be able to sate the demand that we expect. And on-prem, we know if the website is able to take care of that, then the numbers that we have received for that weekend are going to show that, okay, we actually don't need to buy that many of this card, so our number to buy that weekend will most likely be lower than what's actually displayed on the web on the website buy list. Okay. And the buy list number might actually be lower than what's on the buy list because we know our website buy list will, ca will catch more eyes. And we will have more people that are willing to sell or trade in those cards to us via the website to take, you know, credit or cash and then re-up with us, you know, buy what they need to. So the, it kind of goes both ways. If something hits the hot list, chances are it's just going straight back to the website because we know that the demand that we have of the, for the card on the website is higher than the, is greater than the number of cards for, sorry, the total number of that card that we will bring in via the website buy list. So we need to implement our uh, you know, Magic Fest buy list in such a way that we capture more copies of that card. We can bring more back to state the demand we expect. So it, it kind of goes both ways. Okay. And is that something then, you know, so obviously you have the stuff you're pricing aggressively. Mm -hmm. You want it for the website. Do you process no cards over the weekend then? Like do your buys, you just hold them? until they get uploaded on the website or do you separate those out as like hey these are the things we definitely want for the website put this aside because you know when you go to a star city and you sell the star city yeah they don't process that on site Ooh. when you see that get handed to one of their buyers you cannot buy that card until it's on the website yep. and is that something you would do in that case or would you separate out this is the stuff we definitely want and this mm -hmm. is the stuff we're okay selling if someone asks uh so i'll answer both halves of that but there's two answers to both because it it 
it is dependent. If we are buying enough that we know our warehouse will not be overtaxed in putting mm -hmm. those cards themselves, then we will just uh, one row everything. You know, okay. just keep tucking it away in the back, yeah. in the box, in the box, in the box, right? And we, we will review the buys and just verify everything before it goes sure. back home. But if we are bringing in uh, too much, which is a very convenient problem to have, or we know that the warehouse is already taxed. Let's say there's a set release coming up and we know for another game and we know the warehouse is already going to be slammed, then we might actually process those buys that night. Okay. And that is us inputting the cards. They won't be listed on the website. They'll basically just be entered into the system and ready to receive by the warehouse. So the warehouse will have the list of what's coming in already. And they and can just verify. take... Exactly. And... I can't remember if the way they're imported is the way the warehouse receives them. Like, there's no sorting done on it or, or what have I can't that part, that part I can't remember. But basically, it just saves the warehouse some time, mm -hmm. and we'll pre-process them. All right, so that's part of it. If we are uh, in the case of uh, Hogak and Oko Uro, these kinds of cards that people need them on site, we also need on the website. If mm -hmm. we have noticed that we are able to just turn the churn those cards on site immediately, and our buy list for them says you know buy infinite at like seventy plus percent of retail, we will do that. But if we can flip them at the same time and still bring some back, we will do that. We will try. Okay. We basically fry, like we kind of talked about before that the strategy as uh, a bot uh, an attendee somebody who's looking to, to work with the vendors you know your days to sell are really friday saturday your day to buy sunday except in this case if we are mm -hmm. buying uro hogak oko and we know we can flip it on prem we will stop it on we will stop that flip on sunday okay that that is that will be a hard stop but that's when we will we will just vacuum friday saturday would be the days to do that because we know that people are going to be playing them immediately there's going to be that immediate churn that immediate demand and sunday we will stop selling because we need to bring them back to the website guaranteed sometimes i mentioned that pre-process uh we'll know on friday night if we can churn on saturday because we can look back and say okay the website needed 24 copies we bought 18 we can feel free to churn a couple on saturday if that's the case it does work out sometimes like that there are also instances where we'll buy something, you know, like a duel or a fetch, where we do know if we put it in the case and we churn it, it despite the mm. fact that the website may want it, we're fine making that money before the end of the weekend. That one's a little more touch and go, and sometimes has to do really with the price point on it. If it's an expensive card, something that's graded, like I said, a duel, um, an exp uh, a piece of power, something that's iconic to the game like that, that we know if we put it in the case and we churn it on site, A we're okay with but if we bring it back to the website that would also be cool we might put it in the case the next day almost yeah. nothing gets pulled immediately unless we have to fill a hole you know immediately we brought we set up for the event we didn't know that jund was the hot deck this weekend and we sold out of every copy of lily of the veil that we had but people are still asking okay every copy we buy now gets priced and put back in the case yeah that too does happen it is it is definitely touch and go but there are definitely some rules that say okay like no look this is what we do first because website and now under these conditions can we change the way we do things so then say 
obviously, usually there's, you know, Star City one weekend, you might be at Comic-Con and there's also Mm -hmm. a pro tour, you know, obviously there's multiple events and all of a sudden a card that's on your website list spikes. Yep. Do you then communicate with the website to see what the buy price they want to pay is? Or is that something you generate on the fly to just hoover as many as you can up knowing, you know what, if we pay too much here, we can take a little bit of a hit on the website because we're going to fill out carts mm-hmm. and it's extra traffic. And there is a value to that advertising. Uh, that or is, is it like you still want to make your margins, we're going to stay within margin? That is very much a show lead question. Um, okay. I have never been an overall show lead for this kind of thing. I do know it, it has happened where strategy has changed on the fly regarding certain things, and we are yeah. always always in contact with both the website and any other teams that we have out okay Um, there was a point in time where uh, i was at gp i think it was oklahoma and there was another event running and uh, oklahoma was amazing it was a modern event like the that that was the one right before treasure cruise was banned where um titan breach first dropped really it was the birthing one of the the last birthing pod uh, gps and we were working that event, and we were just, it was crazy for everyone there. And then all of a sudden, our show lead got a text from the other team, and it had, from the Italians that flew over from Italy, three fraternal Genesis. The, these nice. guys just walked into the event because they knew that the team that was working there, was just they were BSing with them and that other team. Yeah. Like, you know, you have the time to BS, but you're also very much in contact with one another, and you're able yeah. to change strategy on the fly. Have we pulled cards? Yes sure absolutely because they've got they've popped off somewhere else and we needed to to have them for the website and obviously you know stuff changes over the weekend the deck does well out of nowhere people are clamoring for a ban a restriction whatever because Mm -hmm. magic players love to complain about things that do well yep uh and wizards always listens eventually except for astrolabe whatever can't solve that problem Uh, i uh, I think I know where you're going, and we still bought and sold Hogak at GP Vegas. Yeah. So, so that's I, – I remember having that conversation with you at GP Vegas because we were, like, not touching it with a 10-foot pole. Mm-hmm. And everyone that came over to our booth, we were like, go see them. <coughs> yep. They'll take them. Do yeah. it. Um, banner, not if there's still demand, we, we will pick up. And it's not like we won't eat crow on margins if we have to because sure. we overbought. But if at that point in time, we were buying uh, Hogak for the website, an event or two that we had coming up before the next BNR because they were still on a, a schedule at that point. Things might have changed by now yeah. with, you know, maybe every Monday, who knows. And uh, we were fine eating the couple dollars. Like, uh, yeah, Hogak was like a six dollar rare in Modern Horizons that just started opening two Magic Fests ago, so that was like within not even a month. We were fine eating the buyless price on that card because we'd get out of it eventually. We'd make the margin somewhere else. Hogak wouldn't yeah. just be as a straight zero in return in regards to retail price. Um, and on, I can't remember a time aside from Deathrite Shaman, where we were told to stop buying a card that might have been banned, but the only reason we were told to stop buying Deathrite Shaman was because, like, that's it. We had more than hit our number on Deathrite, like, yeah. the number we needed for DRS. Uh, I also remember, speaking of eating crow, you guys at one point, speaking of high buy lists and being able to sell on the website, I think it was Detroit, where you went around and bought every single volcanic island in the room, even from other booths. Yes. Because you could sell them for more immediately on the website we, uh, yep. so that's 
Uh, we had orders coming in for Valks because there was a legacy event coming up that we were hosting. And so yeah. we had uh, we had just sold out of Valks and we upped our, our buy price to restock. Yeah, we will we will do that. If we have to up the buy price because we have zeroed out, we will do that. And th- that comes down to that communication that I was I was mentioning. Like, um, it it doesn't happen that often that a buy list gets revised. Sometimes you'll see the hand edit on a yeah. paper buy list. The the ones that are, are I love the most are the um, the whiteboard ones because like the whiteboards are the best. Oh, they're I absolutely. But you can see where somebody just like took the hand across. They're like f this, no napkin, no eraser, just new yeah. name, new price, or whatever you need. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's that's interesting because I'm you know hearing that coming from my perspective, it's just booth, 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 booth. Yep. And uh, you said, you know, when you have your inventory for the shows, you take it physically off of the website inventory. Mm, that is correct. And then reprocess it when you get back, put it back up. Yes. Uh, which is something we did at Mini, but not the typical yes. crew I work with. We have an actual booth stock. We have booth case. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to the website philosophy in that we don't want holes. Yep. The thing is, this is our show stock. We want to be consistent because when you go to every single show and you don't necessarily rely on the website model, which as we're all seeing, granted current circumstances, might be the better model. Yep. Uh, thankfully, <laughs> yep. they started developing a website. Thank you. Uh, and TCG player exists, so people can still sell. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing for you know going from the GP side is not only do we want to have completeness on staples, we bring those awful, like, 100 stack of Tome Scour. Yeah, yeah. Because someone's going to pay $2 for one of those, and it pays for the whole stack. Yep. And, like, processing and everything. I, I and that's one of the things that I think affects overhead at those shows. Yes. Is having to ship a staple box or your bulk boxes. Uh, yeah. Uh, or, um, you know, your dollar rare bins, whatever. What you'll see, and I don't know if uh, Joe Dan started this, uh, from Magic Stronghold out in Vancouver, BC, Canada. If you go to a vendor and you see a bunch of binders that are taped together, yep. those were exactly what you just said, the staple boxes. And yeah. somebody, like, unironically went to Staples and bought yep. those binders that weekend, most likely, unless their monster binders was just kind of travel in a suitcase. Yeah. And they just slapped it together on site. That is like for vendors that travel the most amount of overhead that you can really expect unless yeah. you're in Vegas. Vegas has you can bring additional overhead. You can have stuff shipped to your hotel and be yeah. fairly certain you'll send it Fine. back. Or you're the kind of vendor that pallet ships. Yeah. So Channel doesn't really have like Channel does, but they don't have to worry about the overhead on that because they run the GP stuff, so their booth stock just gets pallet shipped back. Yeah. Um, a pallet shipping vendor will be able to move more of that staple stuff than one that flies in with suitcases. And that's big to know as, as an attendee. If you yeah. wander around and you see and you don't see vendors with those kind of binders or boxes, you know, the ogre box, the, the bulk rare boxes, it's not because they just didn't want to bring them. It's because that is overhead that doesn't exist. You can't, yeah. when you have a website like this, you can't really just order those cards off the website. You can't just say, give me a random lot of bulk rares. That's not how it works. When you order off the website, you put an order in against your website as mm-hmm. uh, as show lead. And you order out from the website and you pull that stock. And you have to be very specific like to your additions and condition 
quantity everything you want pulled. You know, you would have to tell the website, you need that many tome scours. You can't just say, hey, go out in, in the back and grab me some bulk. Grab whatever. Yeah. yeah. So like that staple box that you see, if a vendor is able to do that, chances are that's a that probably moves with the kit. It's not worth it to put it back into inventory because it could be yeah. foreign language and you don't deal with foreign language and it was picked up in a larger uh, buy part of bulk, what have you. It could be like bulk staples that aren't worth putting back on the website because they might be format staples but don't have a real value, like vapor snacks. You can sell vapor snacks all day long out of those binders, but you're not going to move them on the website. So what do you do with them? Well, you could either throw them away or maybe you pallet ship so you have them in the staple box. Like, I think that's that's a unique thing that all vendors kind of share as long as they have the overhead to move it around, regardless of whether you're a, web, a website-based vendor or a, uh, an event-based vendor. And I, I think, unless you have any other questions, I think the one thing, the last thing I'd like to touch on is being a, um, a website vendor at a closed event. So what I mean by that is, you know, you are the, it's your tournament series or it's a pre-release something like that where you're you essentially have exclusivity and that is a very tailored event that's a very tailored yeah. buy you base this one is very much based on uh data and and uh historics and you're looking at where have i been what have i sold in this location before what type of event is it sometimes and uh when i vend uh, up here at pre-releases it is very much an EDH crowd, so I get a lot of recent EDH cards, but I also get some flashy stuff like to, to remind people, like, hey, you can, if you want, sit down with me and like trade in yeah. to this duel or this foil JTMS or, you know, what have you. And that, that small event has a very small budget. So you have to be very careful as the show lead when you are ordering from the website that you are casting as wide enough net as possible mm -hmm. to make sure you're able to make as many sales as you can without being too flashy and cause too much overhead. Because these cards are all going to go back on the website for the values they were ordered out at, which is a buy list, I believe, when you're show lead or retail if you're set, uh, stuff set up that way. But you need to interest people in sitting down at that booth. You're not there at these small events necessarily to sell a lot of times. You're there to buy because yeah, you don't come around sure. that often. You want people to just throw everything at you, but you have to give them a reason to talk to you that isn't and work with you that isn't just cash. Some people yeah. are just cool with that. That's, you know, if they come once every three months or six because you're there, you know, this is your event series and this is all you do out there. It's a very unique avenue for exposure and dealing with your clientele and you have to know that and mm -hmm. it is probably more difficult to order for these kind as a show lead to place the correct order to allow that to happen than it is for something like a legacy event yeah and you're like and oh. i think it's correct me if i'm wrong for this, you want to have a show lead that does the same sequence of events, correct? Like, they do all the pre-releases. Yep. They do... Okay. Yeah. Uh, you want a show lead that knows that area, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, your show lead that's worked, that 
works the general like u.s southeast to like south central so florida to texas that show is going to be able to tell you like hey when we anywhere from florida to texas if we go to a large event there and it's modern pioneer send us burn burn everything just red white burn st louis too yeah it's the burn meta yeah and you know your your people that are evaluating how the shows went are looking at the final numbers they're not looking at what generated those numbers and your show lead is the one responsible for making that order and verifying that everything went back in and kind of tracking that data and if you have one show lead for the company cool they have that data in front of them at all times they should be able to handle that if you have show leads based on area or or experience very similar the pre-releases up here, uh, we very much rely on uh, the show, one of our show leads that has like a lot of experience up in New England and the Northeast. So basically everything from PAX Unplugged down in Philly all the way up to anything that might be handled in Maine. Like mm-hmm. we rely on one particular uh, person for all that stuff because they have intimate knowledge of this area and can give a much better idea uh, to anybody running that show what they should be able to expect and what they should be able to to look for when they're buying and selling yeah okay so you however live the booth life yes uh so booth life like i kind of touched on you have a little bit of a broader net in terms of what you're bringing Mm -hmm. Uh, rather than having the website it's almost similar to what you talked about where you have a closed show yes so i you know, when you come to a booth as a lead, you want to have your top 100 staples for the formats that are played, uh, that will be played that weekend with an emphasis, of course, on EDH mm-hmm. because EDH happens everywhere. Yep. So you want your fetches, you want your duels, you want that stuff, of course. But you also, when you're going to a modern event, you want to bring, you know, all of the shocklands you possibly can, your Tarmogoyfs, your Chalice of the Void, yeah, stuff Path, like that. Yeah, Path, Bolt, Fatal, Push, everything you know that people are going to yeah. like. Yeah, all the way everything down. Everything yeah. you Gurmag can Anglers, what have you, yeah. And, you know, you have a staple bin. The thing about the staple bin is it changes by the show. Okay. So you have to know, all right, I'm going to a modern show. Great. What are the modern staples I want to bring that are the commons, uncommons, the bulk rares that mm-hmm. I can sell for more than bulk rare price? That are just stuff you know. And the thing is, when you do this from working as show as your primary, you have a large show inventory or show stock, Mm -hmm. and you don't take all of it with you all the time. You may have, like, here's my modern staple box. Yep. All right, it's a modern event. We're bringing the bulk staples for modern. Bring that with. It's a pioneer event. Bring your bulk pioneer staples. And it's a little bit more space intensive than it sounds like it wouldn't be than just pulling it from a warehouse, but it is because a lot of these places also have their own website with a separate inventory. And the reason that a lot of these companies go for the separate inventory route is because they want consistency at the shows because you know what? This booth had all of the foreign foils I wanted last time. This booth has everything and you want to keep being the booth with everything. Okay. Okay. So like, you know, when uh, Magic Corner comes over from Italy, yep. everyone knows if you want Spanish, Italian, German, French, whatever foils, go to them. Mm-hmm. That's where you want to go. And 
it creates that consistency of brand so that people start to go there when they need XYZ card. What's the first place I'm gonna check? Go there. Okay. And that's why you wanna have a little bit of everything and you wanna have consistency on the staples. I'm at a modern event, I need commons and uncommons. What's the vendor that always has the commons and uncommons at a modern event? Go to them. Yep. I like now, that does... point because when people ask, the, like we send them to the booths that we know pack that way. So it's generally uh, channel or moose uh, yeah. Usually the uh, the local as well will point to because our expectation is that you're local, you should you're probably bring be doing this. Yeah, yeah, and that's it's interesting because it's the two different styles yep. of like the website and the GP. I think really form the symbiotic relationship of vendors that they all help each other out mm -hmm. because you know at the end of the day, sure we're kind of in competition with each other, but. The way I always phrase it is, if you come to me and I don't have what you want, I at least want to be able to tell you where you want to go. Yes. Yeah. I, I think see, every... I want to make this point and then ask a question. I, uh, agreed, we're all in competition, but I think everybody thinks we're in competition. Like, the attendees think we're in competition for the wrong thing. From my experience, we're not in competition for sales. No. If we sell cards, cool. Yeah. I want to buy I want to buy your entire backpack. Everything that I... I'll buy your shoes if you give me the opportunity. Yeah. Is it Eric Lashams? What was his last name? The competition, <laughs> they ran to buy the goofiest piece of clothing. I want to be that. Yep. I want to buy with the goofiest thing I can find in the room. Like, that's it. It Like, that's why I'm there. I'm there yep. to restock and refill. And if... And the, the means to that end is to have cards up front to sell to people as well and bring people into the booth and show them like, hey, I have stock, I'm a vendor, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, so my, my question is to, is similar to the format staples box, when it comes to non-pimp foils, let's just say format foils, right? And I don't mean like, Tarmogoyf and Lily of the Veil are bad examples, but you know, look at like, yeah. Bolt and Fatal Push, uh, Thought Scour, whatever, Wild Slashes, etc. Like, um, that I assume that stuff is outside of the generic staples box, but is it handled similarly where it's like, okay, we're going to a modern event, so we know we need these modern foils, or do they just kind of tag along with the, with, uh, uh, the idea of a foil box? They kind of tag along with the idea of a foil box, and a lot of okay. times it depends. So, like, when you go to a standard event, we typically don't bring foils because... A lot of people don't foil standard. Yep. When they come to Legacy, though, we're going to bring every foil bolt we can. Absolutely, when yeah. we go to Modern, we're going to bring every foil bad cantrip because it's oh, not yeah, brainstorm yeah. that we can. Yep. Uh, and you know, it's it's also as you know, talking on the smaller level, so similar to your pre-releases and stuff. Mm -hmm. If you have an LGS where you host events, well, everyone here that plays Jun likes foiling their stuff out. Mm -hmm. Great. We'll keep that at the LGS because someone will pay too much money for it there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, you know, it's similar to having to have staples in stock. It does create a little bit of an issue with the buy list because mm -hmm. say it's a modern event and all of a sudden Misty runs hot. Well, we were selling Misty's for 50 bucks and we sold out in two hours and our buy price was 40. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there's none in the room now. And this actually happened in Phoenix. Uh, Uro over the weekend went from a $20 buy oh, list yeah. to a $55 buy list yep. in three days. 
because it was a thing where we wanted to have it in the booth. We needed it available immediately. And it allowed us to, you know, autonomously basically decide, great, we're going to mess, like, we're going to do everything we can. Great. We can't get it in. Someone has it for 35 stickered in the room. Our buy price is 40. Yep. Someone is going to go over there, buy it buy for us. 35 yep. and sell it to us yep. for $5 profit. And, and that's this, fine. this is vendors competing. This yeah. is how vendors compete on the weekend. And it is. It's about buying cards. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's similar to there's a couple of vendors, you know, that basically work with some of the Chinese vendors overseas. Mm-hmm. So they have insane buy prices. Yeah. So what they do is they come around before the weekend. They show you their buy list and say, what do you have that you can sell at these numbers? Mm-hmm. And you ship them a one row and you get extra buy cash that's for it. the weekend. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite things to do is uh, going into locations like Detroit and uh, hear me out. It, it, I, I love it for the exact reason I think you're going to say. And Orlando, maybe, where we have made inroads with stores in the area, and we come in with extra cash in hand yep. to walk into a store and just, like, ask the guy at the store, okay, who's, what, like, the register jockey, where's your owner? Dollar, yep. dollar bill, y'all. We're talking yep. about your case. Let's go. And just hoover it up. Yep. And it... You know, kind of an issue with that, of course, is you run the risk of getting burned. Yeah. Because even on Sundays, there's days where you want to pay too much money so you have it for the one guy that might come up and pay insanely too much money for it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And sometimes, well, the price tanks after the weekend because, you know, while in Phoenix, the sticker on that card was 60, it didn't get above 45 on TCG. So you had to start tapering off and judging a little bit more carefully. And the thing is that requires you to be a lot more attentive, not just to the feel of the room, Mm -hmm. but also what other vendors are doing. Because if you're the last person to lower that buy price, you're going to get them all. You're going to get caught with your pants down, basically. And so periodically you'll see people in you know branded shirts walking around checking out all the booths and they'll ask and we all know we're doing it oh yeah uh, what's what's your buy price on uro cool what's your buy price on uro what are you selling it for doesn't matter doesn't, yeah, no, everybody does it mm-hmm. but it does cause your hot list to shift yes and similarly to where you said you have items where you just pay too much money because you know you we can sell them. them on the website yep when you are like a primary GP vendor with an LGS and you're like, hey, I got a guy that's looking for Bayou. Um, I'm not going to hot list it. Yeah, just to get the one. But no. I'm going to pay someone 90% on that Bayou to make my local happy. Yep. Yeah. And that's one of the key things for staffing and communication and like your GP primary business models mm-hmm. is someone needs to have a beat on the local scene as well. And you don't necessarily have the analytics and stuff that you would from a website. Yeah, yeah. You might not be able to access your inventory and see, oh, well, shit, we just sold 12 Volks while we were here this weekend. Let's buy yep. them all. Yep. Um, so it's it's a little bit more, I guess it's it's similar almost to a backpack. Being a backpacker and kind of having that information stored in your head. Mm-hmm. And needing to know, like, all right, well, what can I move immediately? What is selling well locally? And oftentimes, it's literally just one person on the entire team is that guy. The one person knows what's going on at the store. 
and they'll give like a little rundown before the weekend or if things change or, you know, sometimes it's your head buyer that just mm. happens to know one of the locals that's a whale and foils out a bunch of EDH decks. Yeah, and yeah. Oh, God, I think he needed a Misty Expo. Put it on the hot list. We can mm. erase it as soon as we get one. And perhaps I think the most fascinating thing to me as a primary GP vendor is we call it the attention buy. And it's the item you put on your hot list that seems utterly ludicrous to have on there. Okay. And it's this weird, like, well, either you're going to get it or you're not. But, for example, Bernie has put foil Russian Ravnica Dark Confidant on his buy list for $800. The amount of people that have it is have had it zero yeah but probably 80 percent of people ask a question about that mm -hmm. they say why is this on here well company owner loves foil russian cards he just wants to buy one but that's not all we buy we pay a lot of good money for cards and it's a good segue yeah into sitting down at the table unfolding a binder and selling a bunch of cards yeah ours our move is usually um you know you're buying this for too much right yeah 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 we do <laughs> you... sure and i think that's one of the uh one of the differences is kind of how that advertising works yeah because it's a lot more kitschy oh. on like the gp only side sometimes who is it um the the vendors for, for the vendor from China that uses the projector, MTG MTG Mint. Mint, they had Lotus for 10k on their buy list for almost all of 2019. The top yep. card, the top left of that yep. buy list, and I assume you know depending on where you are in the world, they would flip it based on you top top left, top the bottom left right, right? Yeah. and it actually set the market price on Lotus yep. that entire summer. Nobody could sell a Lotus for less than 10k because their buy price said they shouldn't. Yeah, and that's that's the type of thing that is a GP only vendor. Yeah. You can actually do that because so much buying and selling occurs at a GP that having a fluid buy list like they do, great. We set the price. If you're in this room and you sell a Lotus for less, you're losing money. Yep. We'll pay more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also love their buy list, speaking of kitschy GP stuff, because they often have, like, Vin Diesel's face down in one corner. Oh, I never noticed. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. That's if awesome. you ever get an opportunity. So, uh, while we're on high-end, I do have another question. I, and I know it's sometimes usually split in the booth. There's the high-end foil stuff, mm -hmm. and then there's just the high-end reserve list stuff separated out. Does that change from event to event, or does it just kind of come with, because you know what, you don't catch fish with unbaited hooks so it I'll, the way it changes from event to event is very specific generally you have you know your stock mm -hmm. when you go to vegas when you go to eternal weekend when you go to a really big legacy gp rest in peace you'll typically pull out all the guns mm -hmm. and if there's some stuff that's a little bit higher end that you don't always take like your alpha duels um you know, Black Border, Lotuses, a whole set of Arabian Nights, just really weird stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You'll bring that stuff out for those events. Yes. You'll bring it out for Vegas. You'll bring it out for Eternal Weekend. Mm -hmm. 
but you won't bring it to your normal GPs. Uh, you know, the, so the high end stock, your high end reserve list, you know, your Lotuses, your duels, those are pretty much, they're in a separate bin. That's just high end non foils yep. jammed in with the high end foils. So like your expos, that kind of stuff. And then typically you have your pack foils and non foils separated out. Yes. And the reason you do that is for security. You have, you know, your guy that's your high end, you're there all weekend, and they're kind of like the specialist role for the Grand Prix vendor. They can rattle off high end buy prices, condition everything in the blink of an eye. But if you ask them how much an island from Return to Ravnica is, they don't know that card exists usually mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's just not something that they're used to dealing with. Yeah, yeah no, that makes sense. And it's it's kind of unfortunate because I feel like from the website side, everyone knows a lot of the buy prices. You may just have to have a booth lead sign off on a power purchase, mm -hmm. obviously. Yep. But sometimes you'll have that guy that's in charge of high end and they're the only person that deals with high end. It's not a matter of approval. They're the only one. So you can have a line of people waiting, which does sometimes create, you know, yeah. bad customer service. Uh, but it's it's one of the interesting things I've seen at, like, the primary GP side is you have, like, your specialist buyers to the detriment and benefit of the booth. Oh, yeah, definitely. I was just curious because um, from Modern Horizons onward, we basically carried with us the anime Lily almost yeah. the entire time a workshop and then some like medium high reserve list stuff. So like some duels, transmute yeah. artifact, things like that. We were, we're not talking power because we weren't at Vegas. So I've just yeah. kind of, kind of curious how that held uh, for you throughout that, throughout the same kind of process. And there is a little bit of a differentiation between a star city and a grand prix. Okay. So the belief in like your traveling vendors is primarily your star cities are to sell. Yes. Yeah. You buy at GPs and star cities. You can get rid of foils all day long. So if you've got your hard to move foils, like your seventh and eighth edition foils, ship them to a star city. And the reason for that is because the star cities are a much more localized event mm -hmm. as opposed to the grand prix. And because of that, you get your local players who foil out EDH decks and they don't care what version it is of its foil or they play modern FNM every week and they don't care what version it is. They just want to be He's the wanted. dude with cool foils. Yep. So that kind of plays into what you were talking about with like the closed events where it's a little bit similar Yeah. in terms of knowing a difference between a star city, a GP, a pro tour, a Vegas style GP yeah. or an eternal weekend. Yep. Everything has a different feel and you got to know where you are. And I think actually Star Cities have their own kind of unique thing right now, and I don't know anybody else who really runs a tournament series similarly that, aside from face-to-face -face in Canada, I think Bazaar of Moxon might be done, and I think Card Market might be done with their series as well, but the Star Cities event now, Star City events, now that, now that they are allowing in outside vendors, there's really no uh, agreement about how you will and won't do business in regards to like, oh, you can only sell or you can only buy. The reason it's a seller's event is because most people that are going to the Star City event are going because of the brand power that Star City has. So they're there to deal with Star City. Yep. It's also a singular format event, or the last time I actually attended one was a singular format event. I don't remember any sides firing. So there, you only have people there to play in that event or people there to deal with Star City because they they want to sell. 
And I will say, since they added the not command fest command fest thing to them, they have their command zone. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, at Star Cities, it's same deal. You know, local EDH players. Well, Star City has everything on their website, and there happen to be a couple of other vendors. Yep. But they don't necessarily bring everything and shop around as much as you might see. You know, people carrying around suitcases at a Grand Prix to shop around at every single vendor and see who gives them the best prices. Yeah. And uh, the last time I was at a Star City, the the vendors there were also pretty specialized too. So I bought some stuff for my queue, but the one of the the vendors there only sold like foils and altars and yep. signed cards. That was their thing, and that was awesome. But that's way more specialized than you would ever get at a Magic Fest or a Grand Prix. You're not going to find a vendor that deals only in that, you know? No. Um, and that's the nice thing about that, that you can get that at a Star City, is because the overhead's so much lower. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't, you know, you can man a booth with three people and be fine yeah. at a Star City. Whereas if you do that in a GP, everyone's going to want to blow their brains out eight hours into Friday. Oh, yeah, and so. absolutely. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there just are no side events. It is that one event, so you don't have that extra crowd there just kind of farting around waiting for their flights. Like, yeah. It's a blessing and a curse for Star City because they, they staff exactly for that one event, but at the same time, vendors can only vend to that one event. Yeah. And, like, uh, so. and that's, it's, it's interesting, and I think that's, you know, looking at the website-only model uh, and the similarities to that and the primary Grand Prix model is where you kind of see a lot of crossover yep. between someone that works for, you know, Star City and goes to like toa or something like that mm -hmm. uh and that those skills do kind of cross over oh, and it's yeah, not absolutely. you know they're not that different despite the differences in business model yeah. i think the the last question i have and because i've wondered about this as somebody who works for the website my week is essentially like wednesday to sunday yeah. So I get I would my weekend would effectively be Monday, Tuesday because Wednesday is a travel day, Thursday is set up, pricing, everything else, then Friday, Saturday, Sunday event, right? Um, and then I, I go back home, and then yeah. I go back out, and I'm you know I'm flying or, or shuttling everywhere when because I've got to go and get my stock. When you are kind of free to like travel, so to speak, with the inventory, does that change? So it's still primarily like, say the GP is Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, typically, what you're going to look at is you'll have fly-in Thursday. You've got a little bit of the afternoon to you know fart around, do whatever you want, try the local food. Yep. Typically, you're going to do some processing that yeah. day. Prices change. Uh, Friday, the event starts you're doing processing on site as a GP vendor because typically you want to pump that inventory out right away. Mm -hmm. So you have a processor in the back who's going through that. Now, one of the issues is at the end of the night, you've probably still got stuff left to process. You've got to get it done because if you don't, you're not going to get it done all weekend because Saturday and Sunday are much busier than Friday is. Mm -hmm. Now there's two different ways that I've seen people handle travel afterwards. Um, one company I worked for traveled back Sunday because we were expected to be back to work Monday. Okay. The other side is you fly out Thursday, you go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and you either fly back Monday with Tuesday off mm -hmm. or you fly back Sunday with Monday, Tuesday off. 
And the way they typically did it was literally just like, hey, do you guys actually want to spend an extra day in Richmond, Virginia? Or would you rather sleep in your own bed for an extra day? And in the case of Richmond, it is literally always sleep in your own bed for an extra day. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Vegas, for example, it's probably going to be, Stay can we Vegas. just fly back Tuesday? And yeah, right. <laughs> hung over all week? <laughs> uh, and that's, so it, it kind of depends on, you know, your show lead and what the staff kind of wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's kind of the interesting thing about it is, you know, if your primary work is the GPs, you have a little bit more flexibility in that. The problem is that, you know, conversely, if you're doing GPs, you're traveling every single week. Yes. So you may only be home for four to six to eight days a month, and that's mm-hmm. it. Yeah, this is something we, we've talked about. It's just with the, the way everything has to work between the two models, I was very curious yeah. to know where that window of uh, respite was. Yeah. And that's it's kind of, you know, the the lower you are on the totem pole, the more space you have to work with travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, a lot of times when vendors bring on freelance for the weekend, it's literally just, hey, what when do you want to fly in? When do you want to fly out? Yep. Great. Cool. There you go. Yeah. You've got a hotel while we're here. If you're staying after, you're on your own. Yep. That yeah, that that's the worst part, especially flying back somewhere else where the vendor isn't located. It's like, okay, we will be here and your hotel room is until this time. You have to figure out your flight in, your flight out. You will be reimbursed for that. But if you need a night on either end for whatever reason, that's on your own dime. Yeah, and exactly. I, I assume for you that works out a little better because you can you at least have the ability to fly into and out of a bustling metropolis. You know, I'm flying yeah. at a podunk. So yeah. for me, I might, there are times where I might not fly out until late Monday night when everybody else is flown out early Monday morning or midday. So I just chill in the airport. Like, yeah, that's me. And now my weekend has started in an airport. Yeah. Which is never <laughs> fun. And if you're getting the red eye, it's even worse because if anything happens, you're screwed. Till there the is a day. reason why I pay and a fee for my American Express card every year. Yeah. Yep. It's $495 a year for this card, and I use every ounce of that card. Yeah. I And that's that's the other interesting thing is, even on both sides, GPN website, uh, the, the credit card game, which is literally uh, yeah. just what company card you're using that most benefits your company. Is it cashback or miles? But yeah. that's another discussion for another yeah, day. That, that's, a, that's the internal <laughs> discussion. Or if you follow like Brian Kibler and Randy Bueller on Twitter, just go back like three years. You can see it on their, their timelines. Yeah. All right. You ready, got for, you ready for picks? Boy, am I. All right. So you can go first this week because I went first last week. Okay. So... I've got a little bit of a doozy here because I don't know that I I'm sure of it. I'm very sure of it. Okay. I'm not sure how timeline is and I hate standard. So with those caveats, Nissa of Shadowed Bows. All right. Whoop. Four, four right. mana planeswalker that protects itself to get bigger. And has a landfall ability. So it's one of the static ability planeswalkers that are stupid and they never should have done. And they should have stopped designing them a long time ago. A year, whatever it was. 
But they didn't, and here we are with another one. So why Nissa of Shadowed Bows? Well, because this card is stupid. Uh, for four mana, you get four loyalty, landfall, put a loyalty counter on it, plus one, target land becomes a 3-3 three, three with haste and menace until end of turn, it's a land. Minus five, put a creature card whose CMC is less than the... Er, yep. Less, Less than or equal to the number of lands you control onto the battlefield from your hand or graveyard with two plus one plus one counters. So where do I see this card seeing play? Certainly not Vintage, certainly not Legacy, certainly not Modern. I could see it in Pioneer, and I can definitely see it in EDH. Mm -hmm. It falls right into Gitrog Monster color combination. It falls right into Marin color combination. It falls right into Glissa color combination, which is another card that likes to reanimate things. Mm -hmm. uh, this is just a casual all-star. It's aggressively costed. It protects itself, and it loves lands in a color that loves to ramp. Uh, you know, that Jund Lands Matter commander, the Windgrace, that, that pre-con didn't involve lands at all? Uh, this card should have been in that mm -hmm. because lands clearly matter yep. here. One of the interesting things about this is I am not sure if you are better served on foil or non-foil. Now, why do I say that? Looking at TCG right now, the low for an LP non-foil is 251 plus 78 cents. The low for a pack foil, 30 cents more with the same shipping cost. So there's a very narrow delta there. Buy lists don't really exist on the card yet because it's in standard and everyone opened a million boxes. So, because Omnath and other stupid cards from the set. But I think that in about probably eight-ish months, it's going to be a little bit longer here, you're going to start to see this card really take off in EDH. Uh, especially knowing we're getting werewolves, vampires, stuff that matters with graveyards. If it actually is a Viking theme, hey, Vikings love Valhalla. There's another graveyard theme. It's true. Uh, and I think that it's one of those things that's similar to Dredge. The graveyard gets better, and graveyards matter cards get better the longer magic lasts. Yep. Because it's the type of card that just rewards you for doing what you're supposed to do anyways. Play the game. Play lands, play cards. Mm -hmm. That's it. It rewards both of those things, and I think that for 2 to $3, that, that seems incredibly good to get in. And I think it's the type of thing that you could literally just go into your LGS and be like, I'll give you a dollar for every single one you get. Some of them will say no. Some of them will be like, yeah, we're only paying a quarter. Take it. Yep. I don't think that's bad. Uh, I'm always down for criminally cheap planeswalkers, price-wise. And I think this one does way too much for the current price point. I agree that with you that this is basically overshadowed by the fact that everybody opened a million, so the price is obviously going to be suppressed. But the fact that we've just had so many good sets for Commander come out that people are just unfocused right now. Yeah. And they've had a very hard time selecting what they need for what they're trying to do already their people are are experimenting and rebuilding and that's awesome and that's great but for something like this to pick up you need strategies that exist to embrace it because you're not going to reinvent the reanimator strategy 
You're no, going to add onto it, and then people are going to realize, hey, when you pair this with any green-black X strategy that uses the graveyard, this slots right in because it is repeatable reanimation, and that is key. That's really good. Yeah. This is uh, why we liked uh, Haunted Crossroads. Volrath Stronghold is uh, is good for that, too, where you can just recycle creatures like this. You know, mm -hmm. this card definitely has the ability to uh, minus five twice in short order in most graveyard-based decks because you still have to ramp to some degree, especially if you're playing Gitrog Monster or Muldrotha. You're going yep. to be ramping. And you're going to be playing even lands from your graveyard in both of those strategies. It is very worthwhile to keep it, uh, your eye on this. Combined with things like Thawing Glaciers that allow you to just keep... That basically give you two landfall triggers a turn, or can. It is very easy to abuse... Nah, abuse is the wrong word. Minus five this multiple yeah. times very quickly. I'm in 100% for cheap planeswalk for cheap planeswalkers that do things and I think this is a really aggressively cost of planeswalker for what it does and definitely something I would keep my eye on for the long term. I agree the timeline is a little dodgy and as far as uh, versions of this card go it is the cheapest foil version you can get by a lot. The foil is yeah. cheaper than the full art version right now. Tells you a little bit. And I think I would be happy picking up a couple foil copies Straight up TCG, Mike. Yeah. You filter on foil, I brought it up, and you have near mints mixed in with near mint and LPs. Like, this card is just not priced well. People are still racing to the bottom on this. You, yeah. You can buy it now, buy it in a week. I, I, I think this is definitely a card to pick up a couple, a couple copies of. I would be happy to own it. My card. I think however, it's good. I think I agree. Uh, I'm sticking with my EDH roots, and I'm picking a card that I've been watching for a couple months. Whoops, that is the wrong thing. That's still the wrong one. There we go. Uh, MTG stocks. I chose the right scene this time. Windborne Muse, specifically from Legions. So this Windborne is Muse is basically the card propaganda, ghostly prison. Uh, and there is another white creature, uh, a, a commander, I'll bring up in a second, that does the same thing. It basically just makes you harder to attack. So I've been sitting on this for a while, and... As we can see in uh, stocks, it looks pretty good. Like it, It's got a nice curve over time. The reason I've been sitting on it is because of this plateau that happened basically from Theros all the way to Akoria. It was you know, a five-month plateau. It jumps a little bit, and then it plateaus again. And you have almost a, an entire year where this card does nothing in terms of market price, and then the average just sits flat. For the last couple for the last three months while market just rockets the buy lists don't mm -hmm. respond so it, it this tells me that there's a little bit of demand but not quite enough so right now if we're going to be buying in we're going to be buying in on uh the upswing from a plateau and i'm okay with that because we are currently again plateauing now I say that, and you're like, well, why would we buy in a, carto a card that does nothing but rise and plateau and rise and plateau? And a number of reasons. The first one is that it has never fallen in price. It has done nothing but increase. Every plateau has yep. led to an increase. This is a, a short fire gainer. Now, Card Kingdom has basically been buying somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 uh, copies of this card for the last four months. 
and their uh, buy price has finally gone up. It went from, up from two fifth from two dollars forty cents when I started tracking this to three dollars and fifty cents over this past weekend, and this came several weeks after the TCG player spike that we just saw. So Card Kingdom's finally reacting to this. The set foils nine dollars on Card Kingdom. Uh, as of this weekend, and that might actually be a decent purchase if you want to spend the money on it. Just it's again going to gain. It's from Legions. It's an old set border foil. It's going to uh, star foil, correct? Because it's Legions. Yep. yep. So it's going to look badass, and you'll you, you'll be able to get out of that at a profit, no problem at any point in time. Yeah. But the reason I like this card is because it plays in EDH in this kind of uh, unique area where it wants to slow the game down which seems kind of poopy because who wants to play a long game of edh but it doesn't do it for nefarious reasons unless you're the kind of person that plays grand arbor augustine the fourth that's a nefarious reason now you look at the list of generals and you see things like celestial kieran so you're seeing model white control Grand augustine and thalia later down in the list which represent uh, taxes or stack style decks but sprinkled through in here, the rest of these generals, for the most part, make up pillow fort style decks that are meant to slow the game down so that everybody is an equal, on an equal playing field, but also benefit the entirety of the table. And it just allows you to wall up and do your thing without other people really trying to get in and attack you. So you look at the cards that, that play along uh, Seedborn Muse, and you'll see it's like sh uh, Shield of Safety. Yeah, it is yes. on here. That basically just makes you uber hard to attack because it just stacks attacks on attacking you for each enchantment you you own. And this kind of transforms Windborn Muse into this versatile card that just says, all right, I'm going to sit back here behind my... and pillow forward up. You're, you guys are going to play the game, and eventually I'll either win in time when you've blown your load and done Don't everything you can. Yeah. And I'm just going to sit here and chug along quietly and keep up with this game. And ultimately, like I said, either take control or lose because you're just pillow 40. The And this style always plays. Nobody sure. is upset to have pillow fort at the table. Because pillow fort doesn't combo out. Pillow fort doesn't nope. blow up all your lands. Pillow fort isn't looking to kill you with commander damage in one to two swings. People are happy to have Pillow Fort at the table. They're not so happy to have taxes at the table. So keep that in mind. Now, overall, I think we're going to have several months of stability on this card. And by several, it could just be two. Because yeah. of what I said regarding Nissa. People are very unfocused right now with EDH. We just got Commander Legends. They're building everything. And Seedborn Muse doesn't really fit into anything new instead commander legends gives us a lot more pillow 40 slow playing cards a lot of new commanders in the nea shard as a whole be it full nea blue white green white what have you and muse fits with them so they'll be people will be plugging and playing with what's going on so yeah. i expect while that's happening another plateau and we'll see this for about two months then the card will move. Will start to move again. I don't expect to get out to a buy list at profit for almost a year, but I would expect to get out in trade or sale on the open market 
shortly after that time period is up. I think foils are probably good to go within the next month or two if you wanted to move in because they're not making any more of the one time that this card was printed in, two times this card is printed in foil. 10th edition, legions. They're not that far apart in terms of the overall timeline, so the print runs between the two are not that much larger. They, they're not magnitudes larger. And I think it's worth noting again how relevant the old card frame is. Uh, obviously, we can get normal. We can get them to reprint it now, but it looks mm -hmm. distinctly different. Uh, and it's, you know, like you said, kind of this eternal play style. Yeah. It never doesn't play. I love CEDH. I tried to make Pillow Fort CEDH work, and it was Estrid Stacks. And I ran Windborn Muse in it and Ghostly Prison and everything else. Because, like, that's, you know, it plays. Yeah. Even in a format like CEDH, it plays. And I think that that's the type of thing that, as far as liquidity goes, that's really where you want to be. Mm -hmm. Because, yes, it's not reserveless. But the fact that it always plays means it's going to be very hard for you to just, you know, get caught with your pants down yeah. and lose your load on it. I, I think liquidity is important to mention here because this is not a card that I would buy, like, 12 plus copies of and expect to move on the open market immediately I, if i bought four to move on the open market immediately i would be happy about it if i'm going to move this to buy a list i'm going to buy more my timeline is longer and at that point i'm okay moving some to the open market in the interim to make my money back but i wouldn't expect to move that many on the open market they yeah. are not illiquid they are definitely liquid they're just harder to move. Of note, this card yeah. was reprinted in the original Commander set in Commander 2016, and those really didn't do much to the price. It's done nothing but go up over the years. And I think that's something to pay attention to, too, is that the reprint risk here is almost entirely an EDH product, mm -hmm. which doesn't have a large enough print run to largely um, impact the price. I, I, yeah, I'm not going to sit here and tell you you're wrong, but the... They did reprint. I should say they did reprint Seaborn Muse. That was in Battle Bond. That's so it's fair. not like well, they're above printing the Muses, but yeah. it is a cycle. So if they wanted to, they could reprint the cycle somewhere in a supplemental. And Seaborn was more out of the idea that it was needed for EDH than anything else. It's a bat Battle Bond, right? It's meant for EDH. So obviously, you put Seaborn Muse in that instead of wasting your reprint equity on a commander set like a yeah. commander year set if we uh, agreed that the only time we'll probably see seedborn news is in a is as a reprint in a commander set like commander year because this is not a product that plays well in draft walling yeah. up like this in draft is not fun it could have it might have played in battle bond where you had land tax as well because that kind of forms that strategy of all right let me wall up let land tax tick a little bit, and I'll do a thing. But you've got to give somebody a reason to want to turtle up behind Seedborn Muse and Draft. Otherwise, you're just going to create a really obnoxious draft environment with this irregular rare. So bad. Yeah. So I, I would expect this only in uh, pre-constructed supplementals unless they decide to build the draft set around it. Fair. you have to account for it. So. Yeah. I I think the reprint equity is low. Uh, I will agree on that. I, we just have that one point for seedborn muse to, to remember yeah. that's it true and i 
I don't think this card necessarily suffers from a uh, new frame issue. I think the 10th edition looks serviceable. Yeah. But after that, it's going to look egregious because this art was meant to play on an older border. These like these yellows and these shades, this cannabis, the the color palette, not going to look that great on a, a yeah. newer card with the, the newer the newer border style and everything else. It's just whatever. And the foil is going to look atrocious. It already does. I mean, everything new border looks atrocious. It's true. I'm an old fuddy duddy. Deal with it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's it for me on Seedborn. Uh, not Seedborn. <sighs> Windborn music. Windborn. Dreamborn's good, too, but I like Windborn better for this purpose of this conversation. So, Graveborn's good, too. Lavaborn is trash, because uh, it's red. I couldn't remember the name of it. Yeah. It's best you forget. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Yeah, Graveborn dra- draws you cards. For each zombie you control. And it itself is a zombie, so it at least triggers itself, which is cool. Yep. It's a life draw. Worth it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, that's it for part one. We'll be back next week with part two, what it's like to be a backpacker and setting up your binders, your approach to that, and uh, choosing your events wisely, because being a backpacker means you're not flying on someone else's dime. Yeah. So. Kind of rough. Yeah, that'll, that's going to be an interesting conversation for next week, guys. Until then, we are at MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, YouTube, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, eventually. And I am... Apple Podcasts? Did Apple, you say that? Yeah, Apple Podcasts. Yeah. I assume you're listening to it there. Uh, otherwise, I am at Halt, I am Reptar on Twitter. You are... At Thirsty Sizzler. And we'll see you guys next week.